Hello, everybody. Welcome to Hold the Line. My name's Joe, and I'm a British force-free gun dog trainer. You can check out my online courses at forcefreegundog.com. The newest course is called Training the T Drill. You can also pick up a copy of my book called Force Free Gun Dog Training: The Fundamentals for Success, which is available on Amazon's everywhere around the world. There's also an accompanying workbook to record your training sessions in. I'm currently working on a sequel to Force Free Gun Dog Training. And I hope it's going to be out maybe in about six months. We'll see. That's all for now. Let's get on with the show. Train your gun dog without force or fear. Motivate and educate. Hold the line is here. Invention, repetition, generalization, motivation. Hold the line. Oh, yeah. Hello, everybody. I am Joe Laurent, and welcome to Hold the Line. I I'm re-recording this introduction because Beth, who is the mother of my husband, Adam, has told me that the introduction has not changed for a very long time and that I should vary it somehow because you're going to get bored if it stays the same. So here we go. I am now kind of revising the introduction. I will attempt to make it fresh and interesting for each new episode. I also just want to say hi to Beth because she's probably the only person in the entire world who listens to this podcast and does not have a dog. And that probably has no interest in hunting with dogs or shooting over dogs or anything to do with that. Um, She just listens to it because it's my podcast. So anyway, hi Beth. This is the new introduction. Obviously, it's not going to be able to stay like this every week or that would be a bit silly. But I am now committed to coming up with something interesting by way of introducing the podcast for each episode. So, anyway, let's go on with this episode. Hold the line. Hello, everybody. I am completely exhausted through lack of sleep as a result of our new puppy. Um, and I think Adam, my husband, is as well, even though we're switching off and we're taking it in turn. So, one night one of us is kind of on duty, and the other night it's the other one of us. Um, it's funny, isn't it? Because puppies are so different. Some puppies just go through the night within a few days of you having brought them home and seem quite happy to sleep in a different room to you and other puppies are kind of very I don't want to use the word needy because I think that's negative associations and I don't think it's necessarily a negative quality because I think it it's about the attachment that the puppy feels for you and their sort of um, desire to be close to you and it's not a bad thing in terms of training later on that the puppy has those qualities so Yeah, but it does mean that these early weeks are quite difficult if you have a puppy like that. And I do think some breeds are more predisposed to be like that than other breeds. So I do work with a lot of Bimarana owners who struggle with separation-related issues, particularly when they have a young pup and they want to be able to resume some parts of their normal life while still having a young pup. And they're just finding it really difficult to get the puppy crate trained, alone trained, comfortable being separated from them and all the rest of it. So... I do think that these qualities are in some breeds more than others. 
And it's very interesting. I um, read a super book called Pointing Dogs by Craig Koshik, which I highly recommend. Craig is super deeper and he's got a new podcast, Hunting Dog Confidential, which I think I've mentioned recently on this podcast. Um, but in his book, that's where I learned that originally GSPs and Vine Runners were on the same breed register and they were kind of seen as different colours of the same dog, as it were. So that probably explains some, some reasons why there are some similarities between the two. But anyway... You might want to check out his book, by the way, Pointing Dogs by Craig Koshik. Um, anyway, so that's why I'm completely exhausted. But I did just want to mention it because I feel like sometimes there are people who have puppies like this in my puppy training classes and they're sort of looking at other people in the classes and they don't understand how these other people seem to be having things so much easier than they are. And, um, you know, maybe their puppy's very bitey or maybe they are just not getting sleep and they're wondering if they're doing something wrong and if they are, you know, um, there's some really important things that they're not applying. And probably no, it's probably not anything that you're doing or not doing. It's just that your puppy might be more difficult in these particular aspects than other puppies. So, you know, I think all puppies are individuals and that maybe doesn't get recognized so much. It does with children. We, we seem to all sort of know that, you know, there are easy babies who sleep through the night and then there are harder babies. And, you know, um, we seem to sort of take that into account when it comes to human children. When it comes to puppies, for some reason, I think people maybe don't realize that, particularly if they're new puppy owners. So anyway, I just wanted to kind of flag that up as a subject. Hold the line. I'm going to kind of run with the puppy thing as a bit of a theme for this episode, I think. So... I had a question from another puppy owner. This is a question from Hugh, and he has a 12-week-old Labrador puppy and wants to train it as a working gun dog. So his main question, I'm just going to isolate the question from his email, um, which is, where do you stand? What do you recommend in terms of exercise for puppies in their first year? A lot of places suggest five minutes of exercise per month of their life with no stairs or jumping, etc. to allow proper growth of bones and joints. Whereas I've seen some trainers online say that as long as the puppies are able to self-regulate their running, etc., then that is fine. Having a lab, I'm aware they can be very prone to joint issues, arthritis, etc. So I'd like to ensure she has enough exercise without causing damage later on in life. Apologies if this has already been asked in the podcast. I'm slowly working my way through from the start. Um... Well, hopefully you listen to this relatively soon and not at the end after you've heard all the other episodes here because this, this might be more useful to you um, and your question. So I think this is a really interesting question. And the first thing I want to say is that there are some very respected sources who disagree on this subject. So I think what we can kind of do is present the information and where possible the research and kind of just leave it leave it at that for people to mull that over and make up their own minds on it. So, firstly, there is an interesting article. Let me just fish it out. All right, so the paper is called Housing and Exercise-Related Risk Factors Associated with the Development of Hip Dysplasia as Determined by Radiographic Evaluation in a Prospective Cohort of Newfoundlands, Labrador Retrievers, Leon Burgers, and Irish Wolfhounds in Norway. So it's very specific, isn't it? I love these titles. Anyway, um, I'm going to put a link to this um, paper if I remember, in the show notes. And it's by Krontveit at L. That's K-R-O-N-T-V-E-I-T. Um, and basically, it. I'll, I'll read you the bit of the abstract. So um, their objective was to identify housing and exercise-related risk factors when it comes to hip dysplasia in these breeds. And they looked at 501 dogs owned by 
clients from 103 litters. They assess them from birth until their sort of official radiographic screening for hip dysplasia. Um, and they did that at 12 months for Labradors and the Irish Wolfhound. They did it at 18 months for the Newfoundland and Leonberger puppies. They looked at, they did their um, hip scoring x-rays. So basically they also took information regarding their housing and their exercise conditions and their pre-weaning and post-weaning environments. Um, and they kind of looking at correlations. So they found with results that puppies walking on stairs from birth to three months of age had an increased risk of developing hip dysplasia. Factors associated with a decreased risk of developing hip dysplasia included off-leash exercise from birth to three months of age. That's right, you heard that right. That's associated with a decreased risk of hip dysplasia, off-leash exercise from birth until three months. That's a very young age. Um, Also, birth during the spring and summer and birth on a farm. And there was a significant clustering of dogs with hip dysplasia within litters. So there was sort of a genetic, that suggests a genetic tendency towards it as well, I would say. Um, And then their conclusions and clinical relevance, they said, results indicated that puppies less than three months old should not be allowed access to stairs, but should be allowed outdoor exercise on soft ground in moderately rough terrain to decrease the risk for developing radiographically detectable hip dysplasia. These findings could be used as practical recommendations for the prevention of hip dysplasia in Newfoundlands, Labrador Achievers, Leonbergs and Irish Wolfhounds. So that's very interesting, isn't it? On lots of fronts. So firstly, the idea that exercise can decrease the risk of hip dysplasia. And not only that, but exercise in very young puppies up to three months of age at 12 weeks can decrease their future risk of hip dysplasia. As long as it's outdoors on soft ground, they recommend um and again we there was some sort of um kind of widely passed around belief that stairs were not a good idea and that seems to have been held up in this study as well so stairs are not a good idea now what constitutes a stair does one step in and out of your house constitute a stair do are we talking about flights of stairs are we talking about doing this many times a day are we talking about doing this just once i don't know but this is all we have to go by the other things we don't know what happens after 12 months of age so sorry 12 weeks of age can we assume that it's then safe not probably probably not because the study finished at that age so we don't necessarily know that everything's okay from then on so um that's one paper so i just want to throw that out there into the kind of melting pot for discussion and thought now there is a sort of a, a dearth of research on the subject really There are papers and there is research when it comes to human children and whether exercise is advisable for young human, no, young humans. But that involves extrapolating from humans to dogs, which we can do, but we have to remember that we're talking about a different species. So I'll talk about some of that in a minute. I briefly just want to touch on avi dog and puppy culture because they both have things to say about exercise as well. So the thing to say, let's talk about avi dog to start with. So Firstly, if you want to listen to an interview with Dr. Gail Watkins from Avidog, you can listen back to episode 18 of this podcast when I interview Gail. I'm not sure if we talked about exercise for puppies in that interview. We probably didn't because it was quite wide ranging. But do listen back if you want to sort of get a sense of who Gail is um, and some background. But Avidog and exercise, Avidog is quite generous in their recommendations for exercise for puppies. So... Avidog recommends what they call adventure walks. 
um, and maybe I'll, I'll put a link to some an article about avid dog adventure walks for puppies, which if I can find that online as well. But an adventure walk is something which avid dog recommends that the breeder does with the puppies before they even leave the breeder, and that the new owner continues with with the puppy once they bring their puppy home. So, an adventure walk with the breeder involves the mother of the puppies going out into a field um, and maybe starting this when the pups are about I think six weeks ish and the pups will follow the mum around the field and you know the mum will kind of um, wander about and the puppies will naturally want to stay with mum and so it'll be like a little wander about an exploration of the environment with their mother there to support them in their first investigations of the world and the puppies also learning that the onus is on them to try to keep up um, rather than someone else keeping an eye on them um, if that makes sense so but these these adventure walks can be quite long I think Gail at one point says something about 45 minutes for you know this is for like a six seven eight week old puppy and they are through sort of woodland or forests and involve ideally involve things like scrambling on and off objects and crossing very shallow streams and going across logs and um, you know natural obstacles and the playground of the world as it were so so that's what Avidog recommends um, and then the new owner will continue that with the puppy that they bring back so sort of getting their puppy out there into the world to experience the world um, so Avidog have a sort of link called how much exercise do you puppies need and they say a lot according to our new puppy exercise guidelines so this is definitely something that you can check out so they relate this to human children and say that toddlers and preschoolers should get at least three hours a day of of exercise and by six years of age children should be getting an hour of vigorous intensity aerobic exercise each day and that puppies are no different so they're kind of advocating quite a lot of exercise it's not going to be climbing stairs of course um so so that's on the one side of things and they do have some links. I have a link to the article which I just um, mentioned, probably the one article I know about, which is about um, exercising puppies. And they also have some links to some other articles which are about exercise for, with children. So um, you can check those links out on the research out on their website. I'll put a link in the show notes. And then puppy culture, I think, is much more conservative in terms of the amount of exercise recommended. So... Let me just dig out the puppy culture recommendations. So the puppy culture recommendations say that, um, and I'll put a link to this page as well, uh, long walks and exercise sessions increase risk of injury and yield few benefits for puppies. So endurance training is better left until the puppies have grown up. So they also advise you don't completely wrap your puppy up on cotton wool and that you do you know, let your puppy experience the world and explore the world. Um, so... But they're kind of advocating the self-directed play idea, noodling around, not so much exercise, so much as just allowing your puppy to explore an environment at their own pace. Um, and they do recommend that repetition is avoided. So until the puppy's about 18 months old, long hikes and walks and repetitive exercise is not a good idea. So... Okay, folks, it's time for a whistle pause. A whistle pause is when there would usually be an advert from a sponsor. 
but I don't have a sponsor, so instead I'm going to play you a tune on my trusty Acme 212. Now the tune there is slightly hampered by the fact that the 212 is just one pitch, but I hope you can appreciate the rhythm. Now the reason that we've got this beautiful whistle pause instead of an advert is because I don't get any funding for this podcast or sponsorship. I record it, edit it, upload it myself and I pay for the server. I don't want to get a sponsor because then I have to promote whatever business is sponsoring me and apart from the fact that I think that most dog products are bollocks, I would lose some of the independence and freedom that I have at the moment to say whatever I want to say about whatever I want to say it about. But if you want to support me, and if you like this podcast, then there are some ways that you can support me, which will also benefit you, I hope. So you can check out the online courses I make, which you can find at forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon wherever you live in the world. So I really hope you can support me and check out some of this material. Anyway, that is the end of today's Whistle Pause. Let's get back to the show. Wait, there's a big conflict then, really, between these various recommendations. And I think the reason for that is partly that there isn't the research, there isn't really the science to support a hardcore set of recommendations so apart from that we have that one paper which i talked about earlier so i think that we're we're kind of back to just common sense being aware of the advice from various different directions and trying to pick your own way through it and decide for yourself what you think is best for your puppy it does seem that there is research to support off-leash exercise on soft ground at a quite young age so when you get your puppy back home at eight weeks that's like a recommended thing that you that you provide for your puppy. Um, There isn't so much research suggesting that, you know, jogging with your puppy until X age is not a good idea or um, research such as that. However, I think that's probably prudent and makes sense that we don't want to force the puppy to keep up with us. So um, that means either because the puppy's on a lead and we're literally running with the puppy next to us or because we're out somewhere and the puppy kind of doesn't want to get left behind so they're kind of there's a sort of emotional force as as it were that the puppy doesn't want to get abandoned be abandoned by us so they want to keep up with us so that they don't get left behind either way there's a sort of pressure on them to keep going beyond the point where they might be comfortable so i think be aware of that as well try and take the lead from your puppy and when they appear to be tiring um don't overdo it but don't underdo it avoid stares I think these things are all very sensible. There's not really much research for the five minutes per month of age, although I know that that gets bandied about a lot and repeated a lot. And it's kind of become this thing that is almost believed by everyone, even though there's not really much research behind it. Um, So, yeah, I mean, five minutes per month of age, I'm not sure that that would meet the the recommendations for that paper, which we talked about earlier in terms of providing off-leash exercise for young puppies below the age of 12 weeks because um, they would be so young they would hardly be getting any off-leash exercise then so um you know eight weeks that would be like five ten minutes that's you know almost nothing really so um perhaps that's too conservative a recommendation anyway that's all we can say that's the information that's out there i would really recommend that you 
read what Avidog have to say, what Puppy Culture have to say, and that you read this paper and that you sort of think for yourself about how you want to pick your way through that advice and what you think is sensible for your particular puppy. Hold the line. So the other thing I wanted to talk about in this episode is food motivation, especially when it comes to bringing a new puppy home and helping develop food motivation in your new puppy. I think this is really important because it often goes overlooked. I think when it comes to training a gun dog using food, we just tend to talk about using it and you know, give your dog a treat, blah, 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 click and treat. But we don't talk about what happens so much if your dog won't take the food. And you might want to look back at an an earlier episode in this uh, podcast series called from Hannah Brannigan, where we did talk about food motivation for the majority of that episode. So if you just look back through recent podcast episodes, you'll see one, an interview with Hannah Brannigan, and you might want to listen to that if you're particularly interested in the subject as well, alongside what I'm about to say. So I think the thing, first thing to say is to explain where new puppies are coming from when they arrive in your house at eight weeks old. So puppies with the breeder have been often fed very liberally. Breeders understandably are concerned with helping puppies um, gain weight and it's you know it's a problem if a puppy loses weight. When puppies are first born, when they're neonates, you want to see them putting weight on. You're going to be weighing them regularly, you're going to be monitoring their weight gains and you're going to be looking at how well they're feeding and you're kind of observing that really closely and it's one of the research shows that it's one of the um, most important indicators for that puppy's future health and development and shows you that they're going to grow well and become a healthy puppy. One of the first signs that there can be problems can be weight loss and or puppy not gaining weight. So breeders understandably are very concerned about this and it can be quite an anxious time where you are sort of monitoring weights and worrying about if the puppy's gaining weight. And so that's kind of where things have come from. And as a result of that, it's the breeder's job to try to help the puppy gain weight, to try to feed the puppy as much as the puppy needs to gain that weight. And when the puppy is weaned to ensure the puppy's eating well and that all the puppies are getting their fill. It's not like one greedy puppy eating all the food and some others are not getting enough. So there's a lot of concern and anxiety about are the puppies putting on weight are the puppies eating enough and and a lot of breeders pretty much all good breeders will have those concerns so when your puppy comes to you they're probably coming to you from a position of having been fed very liberally having had a plentiful supply of food many times a day and some breeders will free feed where the food is left out all the time but a lot of breeders will leave food out a bit long they won't, they won't move, remove it immediately if the puppies don't eat it they leave it out a bit longer and so the puppies are kind of used to having lots of food available and often it's quite tasty food because breeders will um, soak it in puppy milk or they will um, use wet food or raw food to make it tastier and so puppies are kind of used to plentiful tasty food which is available many times a day and you know, um, the puppy's day involves a lot of eating, basically, because this is a rapid growth period. So when you bring a puppy home at eight weeks, we need to think about those kind of attitudes towards food that the puppy comes into your house with, because we ideally want your puppy to be motivated to earn food. And we know that a lot of these things, if they existed in an adult dog, you know, if we fed an adult dog really tasty food many times a day, as much as they wanted to eat of it, that we would, we would destroy our food motivation, basically. We'd end up with a dog which 
not always, but often wouldn't want to take food treats and would be very fussy about taking food treats. And so there's a bit of a transition that the puppy has to go through when they come into your house. And of course, we are still concerned about the puppy gaining weight and the puppy being physically healthy as well. So I think this is a kind of a period of transition, which new puppy owners may not even be aware that this is a period of transition in this way when it comes to food motivation because they're very concerned with where we've got a new puppy and that's kind of taking up all of their brain rather than how are we establishing food motivation and what are we doing when it comes to food so yeah I think that you know this is an important subject and it's a kind of period in the life of a dog when it comes to food motivation that it's important to try to get right because what puppies learn is reinforcing when they're little tends to be what they um believe is reinforcing later on you can change that attitude you can change a dog's attitude towards food i often work with um dogs that have behavioral issues and very frequently the dogs don't have much food motivation and i'll determine that by asking questions like you know, does your dog always finish all the food in the bowl that, that when you're at meal times is there ever any food left um, is there food types, other types of food that your dog will refuse and, and what types of food will they refuse? Um, if you try to give your dog some food away from the house in a slightly distracting environment, how eagerly does your dog take that food? And so we're just sort of generally getting a sense of what the dog's food motivation is. And often with these dogs, you know, older dogs of various different breeds with behavioral problems, they don't have very good food motivation. And the problem then is that we've got to ad- address the problem behavior, whatever it is, and we've got this lack of food motivation. So, and we also don't have much of a history of the dog having learned to earn food and work for food and build that relationship with their handler through positive reinforcement. So, um, often it takes many weeks, first of all, to develop that food motivation before we can go on to address the behaviors that we want to teach the dog to have so for example if you've got a dog which is reactive towards other dogs we're not going to be able to work on that using certain exercises until the dog does have some degree of food motivation so which is all to say that you can change the way a dog feels later on but it does take a lot longer and it's much better if we can just get it working from the, in the first place with little puppies and we raise them to be really foodie and food motivated and highly trainable when it comes to using food so it is a reason that people will often say I can't train my gun dog using food because my dog won't take food in the field therefore I have to resort to punishment I have to resort to you know aversive methods because I can't use food and that people often say that when it comes to gun dog training and the thing is that we can prevent all of that and address all of that in the way that we train the puppy in the first place and raise the puppy to value food so that's what I wanted to talk about how we go about doing that um, today I'm going to interrupt this fabulous discussion to bring you today's whistle pause. The whistle pause is where an ad break would usually be, but I don't have an ad break. I just have me and my whistle, my trusty 212, on which I'm going to play you a tune. The sad thing about my whistle at the moment is that it's dying a little bit, so bits of plastic have broken off. So it will only blow if I blow it really loudly, then a note will come out. Otherwise, it's this kind of whispery, hoarse, airy, breathy noise. So I've got another whistle on order, and I'd like to reassure you that the the whistle pause will improve in quality in future episodes.
Now, the reason we don't have an ad break here and you have this whistle pause instead is because I don't have a sponsor. I don't want a sponsor because I want to be completely free to recommend the products I want to recommend. And I don't want to have to recommend a product that I don't believe in or love in order to get sponsorship. So there are some ways you can support me, though, because otherwise it is just me making this podcast. So if you like this podcast, there are some simple things and free things that you can do. One is to share it and to tell other people about it and to post it on social media and to promote it whenever you can. The other thing you can do will benefit you as well, I hope. You can check out some of my courses, my online platform, forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon, wherever you live. That is the end of today's whistle pause. Let's get back to the show. And a lot of this is going to apply also to an older dog if you want to improve an older dog's attitude towards food and food motivation as well. So the first thing to say is that you want your dog to be working for all their food. You don't want there to be any free food for your puppy or dog. And I know that might seem a bit intimidating because a lot of the time, if you feed a kibble, for example, the kibble comes in tiny, tiny little bits for puppies. And you might be a bit like, wow, that's going to take us ages to work through all of that. But it's important to recognize that there's just so much to be training a puppy. In fact, a lot of people, myself included, get a bit overwhelmed at the amount of different stuff there is to train a puppy to do. Um, I try not to get overwhelmed anymore because each puppy will, well, as we've already said, each puppy is unique. And so you can make up a fantastic plan for what you're going to do with this puppy when you get them home. And then when you get the puppy home, it's a completely different puppy. And all your goals and objectives and plan has to completely change because that's not the puppy that you have in front of you right now. So I tend not to make plans anymore. I tend to just wait until I've got the puppy, live with the puppy for a few weeks and see who they are. But I am trying to train with the food all that time as well, because that's part of what you're learning. You're kind of learning how much is the puppy into the food, how much they want it, how long will they train for it, um, you know, those. Th- this is useful information for you going forwards. So if you feed a kibble, then it's going to be relatively easy for you to train with your puppy's meals because that's, you know, you can just handle the kibble, throw it around or whatever. If you feed a wet or a raw food, it's going to be pretty difficult for you to train with meals because it just goes splat if you throw it somewhere. It's very messy. Um, if it's raw food, it's probably unhygienic. You can do com- complicated things like put gloves on, you know, latex gloves on and click and deliver a blob of raw food to your puppy. I do know people who do this. Um, you're welcome to try it. It just tends to, it restricts the, the the sort of variety of treat deliveries that you can perform. So you can't throw it, you can't deliver it in certain locations that you might want to deliver it to um, or in certain speeds or styles or you know you're limited to just delivering that to the dog's mouth because or or a bowl on the floor um because that's kind of all that's possible so if you want to feed a raw or a wet food i suggest that you use it for well firstly keep in mind that it's probably going to be the tastiest part of your dog's diet is going to be this raw or wet food component because it just is really tasty for most dogs so it's especially important if you do want to feed any part of the diet wet or raw that they are working for that so 
one suggestion is that you use it to practice recalls, for example. So you ca- you could have your little bowl of uh, wet or raw food with your little spoon uh, in it, and you could recall your dog and give him a blob of whatever it is on the spoon. So you can practice your recalls for that food. So they can have it in that way. And then if you feed a dry food as a component of of your uh, of the dog's diet or the puppy's diet, then you can use that to train pretty much all other behaviors with. So the thing to say though is if you realize that your puppy is not very food motivated when you bring them home, you will stop the meal at the point where the puppy loses interest. Don't keep going, cajoling the puppy, encouraging the puppy to eat, tapping the bowl, playing with the food, adding tastier things to the bowl and spicing it up for the puppy. Um, Because all of this is just training the puppy to do this again next time because it resulted in something better. So if the puppy refuses the food and then you pull out tastier food, you are reinforcing the food refusal by pulling out the tastier food. So don't persevere beyond the point where you recognize that the puppy's interest is waning or maybe just isn't even as strong as you want it to be to be able to train. So at that point, you would just stop the training and you would put the food back in the fridge or back in the bag and you would give the puppy no further food until the next scheduled mealtime when again you would get the food out and again you give the puppy an opportunity to earn and work for that food. So that's basically what I would do. Now, if you want to give the puppy food during the day, so if you're coming in from outside, um, for going to the toilet, um, I don't know, for nice behavior, for not jumping up, then you can take a small amount of their daily ration and you can use it to reinforce the puppy throughout the day. You just have a few bits in a little tub that you use to reinforce the puppy throughout the day. And that comes out of the daily ration, so it's not anything extra on top. So all of that works really well for training stuff in the house if you have a food-motivated puppy. Now, sometimes you do get puppies that are kind of a hard case when it comes to food motivation. They kind of think that about 95% of food motivation issues, dogs which won't work for food, is something that's caused by the owner and the way the owner is using food. But there is the small percentage of dogs, and I think that you know Hannah and I talked about this in the earlier podcast episode, there's the small percentage of dogs which for some frustrating reason just don't seem to value food. And you can do all of these, you can take all of these measures and you don't seem to affect the change that you want to affect. It doesn't result in a dramatic improvement. So with those particularly hard cases, it can be really frustrating. You just have to keep plodding, <laughs> plodding along and plodding away at it and ensuring that your dog works for the food, not giving them food for free. And with a puppy, it's particularly concerning because you want to make sure that they are getting the nutrients that they need <clears throat> to be able to grow. So you want to be monitoring their growth and making sure they're not getting too skinny. But beyond that, you don't want to be prompting them to eat. I think a lot of people feel like, oh, this puppy's got so much growing to do. Look at this puppy. It's so tiny. It's got to eat a lot because it's got so much growing to do. But what they don't realize is that the puppy's stomach is probably the size of a walnut or something. And they just can't eat very much in one go. So what might look like a lack of food motivation can actually just be that the puppy is really young it's really small and its tummy is tiny and it just can't eat very much at a time so i have had clients who you know their idea of what the puppy should eat was far more than what the puppy was capable of eating and when the puppy just wasn't able to eat anymore they would worry that the puppy was going to lose weight or not put weight on fast enough and they would pull out tastier food and offer the puppy tastier food and the puppy because it was so delicious would 
you know eat a bit of that because it was just so tasty even though they were full and they didn't really want any more food and then that the fact that the puppy ate some of that reinforced the owner offering it so the owner's behavior was reinforced because the puppy ate and so the next time the next meal time the owner again will pull out the tastier stuff if the puppy refuses and before you know it you have a fussy eater and a food motivation problem so that's one thing i would say the other thing i would say is that puppies grow at different rates and developmentally they are they are very different and i think there's a lot of breed specific stuff involved in this for example our labrador our labradors have been able to do things like you know stand on pivot discs and rotate around pivot discs to stand with all four feet in a box and be shaped to to do that and you know to do all of this stuff after we've had them maybe like by the time they were like 12 weeks or 11 weeks or something like that um and they they've just they've just really get everything really quickly um and the verbal cues they tend to pick up the verbal cues very quickly for behaviors and uh, you know there's a phrase that labradors come half trained i think i think that's something that people often say and i think this is probably why i think that developmentally they are just a bit ahead of some of the some other breeds um interestingly our gsp pup we've got at the moment she hasn't lost any of her teeth yet and she's just over 13 weeks now whereas our labrador pups had pretty much lost all of their top and bottom and sizes by the time they were 12 weeks pretty much so um you know i think even physically we can see developmentally there are some differences so anyway we have to make allowances for breed differences and for different developmental rates as well you can only go at the pace of your own individual puppy but just keep keep in mind that puppies have small tummies they can't eat very much don't expect them to eat a huge amount look at their sort of size and shape and weight how visible their ribs are bearing in mind that some breeds especially the hbr breeds the versatile breeds are more athletic and slimmer than labradors or chessies or you know these bigger breeds of dog who tend to put on more fat so keep that in mind as well um and ensure your puppy works for the food and earns the food and gradually it should come together now when i end up training away from the house everything i've said sort of said there about using the tastier food for recalls and using you know the less tasty component of the diet for training everything else that's great for working in the house but then when you move away from the house the less tasty part of the diet probably um isn't going to be interesting enough for puppies away from the house you're going to need to use something a bit tastier so um i like to use stuff which is as natural as possible so meat any sort of roast meat liver heart kidneys um giblets <laughs> i don't know anything that i can pick up from the butcher um which is relatively cheap and i just boil it up and use that and you can use some cheddar and basically just mix it all up um now i say mix it all up but sometimes some dogs it's best to keep it separate because if a dog decides they don't like one particular thing then that gives you something else that you can move on to if you've separated out your treats and if you've mixed all your treats up together it can be a little hard to do that most dogs actually don't care if you do mix them all up together and if that's simpler then just do that but if you do have a slightly fussy dog it might work better for you to have a sort of higher category of treats that you can move to should you need to so that's why we'd use away from the house if i were going to a, was going to a class or when i start going out to the field to train the dog in the field every day that's the sort of thing that i'll be taking and I'll, for recalls always be using amazing stuff so not not just their wet food or their raw food but i'll be using pate or um gourmet wet dog food 
or the various different flavors which they may not have experienced before um black pudding sardines smoked mackerel think squishy stinky squishy and stinky is my recommendation for recall treats and you can put these in a pot like a little sort of addis beaker with a screw top flask lid and you can have a little toddler spoon a little kid spoon in your pot so you don't have to touch this stinky messy stuff you can just pull out a spoon and give it to your dog so that's what i would use for recalls and then i separately i would have my other treats that i just described so that's what we do going out to the field um now people often want to talk about feeding raw and what if they don't want to feed something at home which they can train with you know if they want to feed entirely raw diet not just part raw but entirely raw so when i have puppies i feed something that i can train with at home so it's that I've tried to think about this in various different ways because I fully believe that feeding raw is the healthiest diet and the best way to feed a dog. And my adult dogs are fed on complete raw foods. So ideally that's and that's what my, you know, the puppies we've had, they've been um, raised on raw. So uh, until they're eight weeks. But when they're eight weeks, we need to be able to use something that I can train with at home. If we don't do that, what tends to happen is the puppy gets there their sort of meal of raw food and then you also need to use a pretty hefty amount of food to train with so if you're not going to use the raw food to train with because you've decided that it's not hygienic or it's not practical you can't throw it or whatever then what are you going to use so most people then would go and pull out you know their chicken or their kidney or their liver or everything that i've just described for using away from the house and so that means that the puppy gets all of that in the house in this low distracting environment they're getting a really highly reinforcing treat or you know a high value food and i think it's best to try and match the the tastiness level of the food to the distraction level of the environment where you're working so if you're working somewhere not distracting like at home then you can use a pretty low value food and you should have a dog that is happy to work for that at home when you go away from the house to where distractions are much higher you that's when you need to be able to pull out the big guns now if you use up your big guns at home in a low distracting environment it doesn't really give you anywhere to go to anywhere to escalate things anywhere higher you know any more big guns basically to pull out and use when you're then training away from the house so that's one reason but the other reason is just about a balanced diet so the dog needs to have a certain amount of minerals it needs to have vitamins it needs to have the right balance of calcium to phosphorus in its food and if we reduce meals a lot because we're using all this tasty you know kidney liver heart whatever for training at home and we so we we reduce the puppy's meals then we we may not be feeding a balanced diet during the growth period so that's another thing to to consider so what i tend to do with puppies is i do feed something that i can handle at home so one suggestion is zeewee peak which does not have any carbs in it it's air dried raw and you can handle it you can throw it around there is another kind of air dried um kind of i think it's part air dried part freeze dried raw called fresco which is quite a new one as well um so fresco it's quite hard the little it's very delicious according to my dogs but it's quite hard the little um pellets of it so um but that is another option and then then there are people who will use really high quality kibbles like origin or uh, Wolfworthy here in the UK, but you know, f- kibbles which they will only use during puppyhood and not for the puppy's whole diet because they're still feeding part raw 
and practicing their recalls with the part raw component. So I think the important thing to say is that there's something which is nutritionally balanced and is a healthy diet for your dog, which you can train with and handle and throw around and all the rest of it. So um, those are my kind of tips for establishing food motivation in puppies. Now, it's definitely true that there are some puppies that it's harder to work with and establish it in than others, but you can only work with what you've got. So remember always to what I want to say split on a human level. So what I mean by that is that we always talk about splitting in terms of dog training and how important it is when we're, when we're talking about the dog and the dog's learning to split things down. So if the dog can't manage something to reduce the criteria and find something the dog can manage so that then we can reinforce that. But I think one other effect of splitting is that it helps us, the trainer as well. So rather than us getting frustrated because the dog can't do whatever it is, if we adjust our goals and our expectations and our training plan to be something that is achievable, then we get reinforced when the dog does manage to achieve that. So it's about us too learning how to adjust our goals so that we can keep going and persevere when we face difficulties as well. Anyway, those are my sort of thoughts on food motivation in puppies and also exercise in puppies for this week. And I will be back next week. Holiday line. Holiday line. Holiday line. Holiday line.